That being the case, we got to transition back into our Day After Christmas series. If you don't hear last week, I can get you caught up. Uh, we talked already about all kinds of, what do you do the day after Christmas? And what do you, how, who stays in their pajamas? And then who likes to get their life back? And it turns out like just me and three other people in the church are the Grinch who just wants to get Christmas over with. Once Christmas is over with, then everybody else is like, let it roll! And, and wants to just stay in the pajamas and all the stuff. And so we did a lot of review on that. We did a lot of talking about that already. Let me get you into the text. Let me get you into the scriptures we cover. And I'll tell you uh, that and we'll get right into it. So we went to Luke 132 and 33 and we found this big idea from the scriptures this is when an angel comes and talks to the virgin mary and he's speaking of jesus and he says this he will be great and will be called son of the most high the lord god will give him the throne of his father david keep going and he will reign over jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom this is jesus his kingdom will never end. And we discovered, yes, Jesus is a savior. Yes, Jesus is a healer. Yes, Jesus can be there for us and be our helper. But above all of those things, Jesus came as a king. He is the one true ruler of creation as we know it, of your life and of my life as well. And so we kind of landed on this big question and it comes before all the other questions in our faith. Is Jesus my king? So we could talk, hey, uh, what, do I, what happens to me when I die? We could talk, how do I know I'm saved forever? We could talk, should I do this with my life and obedience? Should I do this with my sexuality? Should I make these kinds of decisions or these kinds of decisions? Should I resist what culture is up to or should I go with the flow of culture? We talked, all these questions come after the question, which is simply, is Jesus my king? And then we just doubled down on that because we went to Matthew chapter 2 and we started talking about another part of the first Christmas story. And it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. And so this is important because there's two new characters introduced. There's this King Herod, and we talked about he was this crafty king. He's a Roman official. He oversees the area that the Jewish people are settled in. He reports to Caesar and helps manage the Roman kingdom. He was actually called the king of the Jews because he ruled over the area with the Jewish people in it. Uh, he was a violent king. He, he was a volatile king and he was obsessed with himself and his legacy. And then there were these magi and we burst a lot of bubbles because these magi roll in and it's not actually just three wise men like you have in your nativity scene. It was this whole entourage and they come to Herod and they're like, hey, we've come to worship this king. Uh, we saw a star, and who, how did they know this stuff? How did they do this? These magi were these wise men. They were, they were royal officials. They served a king as advisors. They studied all kinds of ancient texts, all kinds of religious texts, as well as astrology and the stars in the sky. And so they show up unannounced at Herod's castle. They didn't just show up at the manger over here. They see it in the sky. They go, okay, where's the capital of this whole place? Where's this king being born? So they no, no doubt end up in Jerusalem talking to King Herod and they go, oh my gosh, we heard about this new king. We've come to worship him. Can you tell us where we can worship this new king? To which Herod says, oh, 
you must be the guys from the nativity scene. How sweet. Let's all go worship the newborn baby Jesus together. Time out. That was just to make sure you're paying attention. Herod did not say this. This is not in your Bible, but it is in fact to point out this idea that Herod would have been completely shocked by the arrival of these magi. He's the king of the Jews. He's the ruler of Israel. He's the one who keeps everything under his thumb. And so, knock, 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 surprise. Hey, Herod, we've come to worship this new king. He's shocked, and not only shocked, he's threatened. Because if these guys would have just came and said, hey, we heard that there's going to be this great religious teacher, and he's going to be born somewhere here. Well, Herod's not threatened by a great religious teacher. When he says, uh, hey, we heard that there's this prophet and he's going to come up and just tell us the truth of God and all these things and do prophecy. Herod's not threatened by prophecy. Why? Because they've seen a hundred prophets come and go. When they show up at his door and they say the words, we're here to worship the new king, Herod is rattled. Why? Because a new king will come to usher in a new kingdom. And eventually that kingdom will collide with the kingdom that he's built and established. And people are going to have to choose sides. So here's what really happens in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. It says, When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah will be born. And we introduce this new word, Messiah. And that's this title through scripture. And it means God's final king. So Herod is shook. He's not sure what to do. There's advisors around him. They're planning. They're scheming. They're triangulating. Verse 8 in Matthew here tells us a little more. He, Herod, sent them, that's the Magi, to Bethlehem. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me. So I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them, and sorry, they followed that star until it stopped over the place the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. A good friend of mine uh, lives in South Carolina, and, and he's a pretty good preacher. He preached this text last week. He's not as good as me, but he's all right. And, and he, he just explained in his message on this passage, and this is something that I just agree with. So good job on this one, Nate. When you are in, in the presence of God's one true King, bowing down and bending a knee is your one proper response. So the Magi, they see the young Jesus. They see the baby boy. They see his mother. And I could only imagine for Mary and Joseph the affirmation they felt in that moment. Have you thought on that? The teen pregnancy, the let's hide this thing as long as we can, the idea that you're going to have to go to your families, knocked up, and say the words, don't worry, it's from the Holy Spirit, and God's final king will be born through my womb, and don't worry, even though you think this looks bad, and we've got a lot of explaining to do, he's actually the savior of the world, and they go on this journey, in this manger, and there's no room, and they're broke, and then they're there with baby Jesus, and they're figuring out what the heck they're supposed to do with their lives, and unannounced to them, kings show up with gifts 
They show up to worship. And they bow down before this young baby. And Mary and Joseph breathe the biggest sigh of relief you could ever imagine. They stay there where Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem, six miles down the road, and then this unique verse happens in verse 12, and it says, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. I could do a whole sermon on Matthew 2.12, and we would just call it, trust your gut. There is something to be said for sanctified common sense. These are wise men after all. So when Herod looks him in the eye and was like, hey, can you guys use your astrology to take me to this king? You're here to worship him. Oh boy, I'd love to worship him. Let's all worship him. They knew exactly what he was up to. They knew exactly what he was angling for. And so they move from Bethlehem back east. They take the southern road. Something else happens. This angel comes to Mary and to Joseph in a dream and they warns them, hey, Herod is on the prowl to take this young baby's life. Why don't you guys go down to Egypt to hide out, which is very practically and functionally out of Herod's jurisdiction. Now this is a cool one about the sovereignty of God. How the heck do this young man and this young woman with two, not, who don't have two pennies together afford an all-expense-paid trip to Egypt? I'll tell you how. God sends gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Don't ever doubt God's ability to provide for you in the moment of crisis. Because those gifts were on the way as the exact moment the baby was being born. As if God was telling you and telling me, relax, I got this. And then we get to the part of the story that nobody likes to talk about. We get to the part of the story that doesn't show up in your nativity scene. We get to the part of the story we don't share over there in kids' church. Verse 16. It says, When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time frame that he had learned from the Magi. And there was weeping. And there was loss. And there was pain. The day after, the first Christmas, ever. So what do we do with this? How do we take verse 16, bring it into our time and our place and our space today, and live differently because of it? Well, there's two things. Number one is this. Our faith does not require us to look away from cruelty injustice or suffering. Cruelty, injustice, and suffering are baked 
into the Christmas story. They are baked into the gospel from beginning to end. If you're getting into this faith thing and you're like, it is a cold, violent world out there. Maybe if I have this faith thing, it could kind of bring me some form of immunity. It could bring me some form of protection. It could bring some sort of safety to me and keep me all this bad stuff from happening to me happening to me can i just tell you something it doesn't work that way i have followed jesus for 20 years now it's made my life better it's made my life greater but it hasn't made my life easier the gospel is marked by cruelty injustice and suffering from its very beginning to its very end because the baby would go from the manger to a cross and the cross of Jesus Christ is the symbol that we base our whole faith on and it is the most unjust moment in human history on the cross the worst thing possible happened to the best person ever so we could be forgiven of our sins here, here's the redeeming fact about the cruelty, suffering, and injustice that happened from beginning to end in the life of Christ. Here's the one redeeming fact. The very first Christmas had to happen because of the cruelty and injustice and suffering in the world. It had to happen because the cruelty, injustice, and suffering flow from the hearts of sinful mankind. And can I tell you something? You can't legislate away sin. You can't, you can't religion sinful hearts into good hearts. They have to be saved and transformed by a Savior. And when we remember Christmas, we remember that we were given one who would eliminate sin from mankind, which is the one hope we have in this world. What do we do with this? Well, here's what I've found. In the gospel, if you follow the threads of cruelty, injustice, and suffering long enough, they lead you to the cross. Can I tell you something? In your own life, if you have the courage and the guts to sit with your pain, the injustices that have been done to you, the times when you've suffered deeply, the emotional pain that's a little too deep to even raise your hand and share when you go to small group. If you sit with those long enough, they'll lead you to the cross as well. And at the cross, you will find the strength you need, the grace you need, and everything you need for that pain to be transformed for God's glory. What do we do with this? <laughs> Let me just make this the worst Christmas message of all time, okay? What do we do with this? The same tension, we have to acknowledge this, the same tension that ran through Herod's heart runs through our... Can, you're like, can we just get to baby Jesus again and peace on earth and goodwill towards men and angels and a pat on the back and I feel good? Yeah, we're getting there. That's next week. Don't worry. It's coming. But before that, we have to acknowledge the same tension that ran through Herod's heart ran through ours as well. We love... We're a little bit like Herod. Like, backpack faith is nice sometimes. 
Like sometimes the idea of making Jesus king over my entire life, all my life, every last bit of my life is exhausting. Sometimes I feel that same temptation to pack him away in here. If I could just, I, I want that helper Jesus. I need savior Jesus. I need love me back to health Jesus. I need self-care Jesus. But Lord Jesus is hard to deal with sometimes because it means I don't get to do me anymore. It means I don't get to call the shots and I have to give up two things that I love most in this world, my autonomy and my independence. What was it that sat by and heard what takes a you know, prestigious king and turns him into a weak, fearful murderer? It's the threat of not being in control anymore. There's this writer, he's this great spiritual thinker named Henry Nouwen. And I was going back over some of his stuff this week and he touches on this. He doesn't mention Herod, but I think you're going to get what I mean when I read this passage. It says, The rich young man loved Jesus but didn't want to give up his wealth to follow him. Nicodemus admired Jesus but was afraid to lose the respect of his own colleagues. I'm becoming more and more aware of the importance of looking at these fearful sympathizers because that group, it's that group is where I find myself mo most gravitating toward. I love Jesus, but I want to hold on to my own friends and even when they don't lead me closer to Jesus. I love Jesus, but I want to hold on to my own independence, even when that independence brings me no real freedom. I love Jesus, but I do not want to lose the respect of my professional colleagues, even though I know that their respect does not make me grow spiritually. I love Jesus, but I don't want to give up my writing plans, my travel plans, my speaking plans, even when these plans are all, all more often about my own glory than the glory of God. And I'll just zoom in on one part of this that, I want, that we can't afford to miss this morning. If you go to the next one for me, Nick. He says, I love Jesus, but I want to hold on to my own independence, even when that independence brings me no real freedom. Go back one. Right there. I want to hold on to my own independence even when that independence brings me no real freedom. And what I love about this now in quote is it points out so clearly to you and to me that our independence only creates the illusion of freedom, not real freedom. When we go back to this idea of King Jesus, King Jesus is the only one or thing we can serve with our lives that won't eventually enslave us. Show me somebody who is forsaking everything for their financial independence. And I'll show you somebody who's a slave to their finances. Show me somebody who wants to maintain their autonomy and so they want this relation. I don't want Jesus to rule over this thing because when I'm with them, I feel better about me. So even though this might not be what God has for me or what Jesus wants for me, I'm going to hang on to this relationship because I don't want to lose it. And they are enslaved to the relationship. See, our independence only creates the illusion of freedom and at the same exact time, it makes us more enslaved. So now, 
brings us the answer. He says this, God wants not just a part of me, but all of me. Only when I surrender myself completely through God's parental love can I expect to be free from the endless distractions and ready to hear the voice of love and able to recognize my own unique call. It's going to be a very long road. Every time I pray, I feel the struggle. It is the struggle of letting God be the God of my whole being. It is the struggle to trust that true freedom lies hidden in total surrender to God's love. It's one of the great paradoxes. In the kingdom of God, surrender is almost a cuss word in our culture. I don't want to surrender. I don't want to surrender control. I don't want to surrender my autonomy. But in the gospel, surrender is the only true door to freedom. And so my heart and my hope is that today we would each take a lesson from Herod. His struggle to maintain his autonomy and independence made him more weak, more fearful, and enslaved. And the same thing happens to us as well. Band, you guys can come up. We're going to finish with one song here in a second. But on the other side of this idea, there's an invitation. And you can listen to the voice of Jesus inviting you into greater freedom and greater love. And I get the idea making Jesus king over everything you are and everything you have is a frightening one. But it is the only place where you become truly alive and truly free. And so I get it. For some of us, when we think about this idea of freedom and autonomy, it, it all boils down to that nagging conviction you have to actually let Jesus be the king of your life. Like this morning feels like tension because there's a part of you that knows you were made for that. A part of you feels like you are being called that direction by God. But inside you, something has your heels dug into the ground. You're clinging to those last pieces of your autonomy. I'm just here to tell you, King Jesus gets it. He's the only one who can actually lead you to a life that's free. A life that's alive. And a life that's everything you were created to be. For others here, it comes down to this like moral decision. You have this like one moral decision and you're like, this whole thing boils down to that. I want to do that because it makes me feel good. But if Jesus were truly lording over this situation, I wouldn't do it. 
so for you right now you sit right in between those two places I'm here to tell you there's a king who loves you who gets you and is sitting waiting for you to step into everything you were made to be for some of us it's what we call in our student ministry the seventh slice seven like the number slice like slice of pie and if your life were sliced into these seven pieces God has the first six you're like oh these I got you on the first six I, I we did this one I remember that lesson I let go of control of this thing now you got this other dude the first six you are there but there is a seventh slice of your life And you're still wondering if you can really trust that slice to God. And as your pastor, and as one of the biggest fans of your faith journey, I'm telling you, you can trust him with that slice. And that is probably the decision that unlocks all of the next blessing, all of the adventure, all of the calling and all of the destiny that God made you for. And you can trust him with it. So I want to invite you to stand and I just want to pray for you right now. And then we're going to just wrap with this song. Let's pray together. God and Father, I thank you this morning for being a true and worthy king. I thank you this morning for your great love for us, for the way that you love us so much, you pursue us, not aggressively, not squashing us into obedience, but with an unconditional love. It's almost too good to be true. Jesus, I pray for all of us this morning that you would just be calling us into new places of obedience, new places of faithfulness. That, Father, as we make these big, scary decisions, you'd be right there affirming us and calling us far forward. All these things we pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen.